You're listening to CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, and this is Speaking for Change. I'm Kike Roach. For the past six years, I've been the Unifor National Chair in Social Justice and Democracy at Toronto Metropolitan University. The mandate of the chair is to create a hub of interaction between social justice activists and the academic community. In 2011, Winnie Ng and Salman Khan started Social Justice Week, and it's since continued under my stewardship. Every year, it has brought together TMU students, staff, faculty, and the broader community to raise awareness and inspire action. Over the years, we've hosted dozens of notable speakers, centered essential conversations, and encouraged and supported countless students to become more engaged in their communities. The fall of 2022 marked the final edition of Social Justice Week. A dozen years of events has left us a valuable archive of recordings touching on issues that remain extremely relevant today. So we wanted to share some of them with you. Speaking for Change is a weekly series of recordings from the past decade plus of Social Justice Week, a space to reflect on and celebrate the work of progressive change makers. In 2020, Social Justice Week celebrated its 10th anniversary with a special opening night event called Beyond Pipelines and Prisons, Infrastructures of Abolition. In today's episode, we bring you highlights from this event. It features two extraordinary feminist anti-colonial thinkers in dialogue about how to build the infrastructures that can take us beyond planetary social and ecological collapse. Winona LaDuke is an international thought leader in the areas of climate justice, renewable energy, and environmental justice. She is a rural development economist working on issues of economic, food, and energy sovereignty, and is the author of six books. She leads several organizations, including Honor the Earth. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is a professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences and director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics at the City University of New York. She is co-founder of many organizations, including the California Prison Moratorium Project and Critical Resistance. She is the author of Golden Gulag, Prisons, Surplus, Crisis, and Opposition in Globalizing California. Just a quick note to listeners. In her introductory statement, Winona LaDuke discusses several works of art which were shown on screen during the original presentation. While you won't be able to see them, we still wanted to include her remarks on them, which paint a picture in their own right. Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Winona LaDuke are both deeply invested and active in on-the-ground social transformation. They have built vital infrastructures for survival and flourishing in their respective communities. Both are also active in struggles against the expansion of toxic and colonial infrastructures like pipelines and prisons. In this event, moderated by Shiri Pasternak, an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology at Toronto Metropolitan University, Leduc and Gilmore draw on their respective lived experiences in urban communities and on remote Indigenous reservations. Together, they discuss what a decolonized, ecologically and socially just future might look like. What the world will become already exists in fragments and pieces, experiments and possibilities, including symbolic and material infrastructures on and through which we change everything. We can see across the terrain of racial capitalism, 
how carceral geographies organize or disorganize all kinds of communities involved in many kinds of struggles, often all at once. Decolonization against environmental harm, for the right to stay put and the right to move around, for adequate income, adequate food, for protections from calamity, for opportunities to flourish, for education, against illness, for care, against organized abandonment and the organized violence of criminalization and colonialism and dispossession, including and especially the extraction of life's most precious non-renewable resource, which is time. Abolition geography is the antagonistic contradiction to carceral geography. Abolition geographies, we can see it. And as we look across places and through time at provisional abolition geographies, we find the dialectics of space and place at work in practical, immediate, and normative dimension all at once. Abolition is present, which means abolition is life in rehearsal, not recitation of rules, much less relentless lament, although the surface of contradiction dynamics in their dominant reading propose carceral displacement or spatial fixes necessary, natural, or inevitable. But abolition is present. It is life in rehearsal. In order for the contradiction to ripen, the stage tells a story too. And we've already been talking tonight about the condition, environmental, colonial, displaced condition, in which and through which we try to make abolition geographies in order to realize a simple thing. Freedom is a place. So when I say the stage tells a story, obviously I invoke Bertolt Brecht's creative thought, which then compels us to consider everything, everything, in order to change everything. So I would like to conclude my introductory remarks with a couple of uh, figures who have always um, impressed my imagination to expand and explode beyond its natural limitations. One is Amilcar Cabral. Cabral, as many of you know, was a leader of the PAIGC, which was the African Party for the Independence of Cabo Verde and Guinea-Bissau. Cabral trained as an agronomist just as Winona LaDuke trained as an economist and I trained as a geographer. We all trained so that we would join the professional managerial class, but we didn't do that. And what Cabral did as an agronomist was to walk the land. He walked the land of Portugal, the colonial state, 
that had his home under uh, imperial rule. He walked the land of Cabo Verde. He walked the land of Guinea-Bissau. And he learned not only how to think about making the soil most productive, and he learned not only how to think about combining the energy and imaginative capacities of people and land and water and resources to make Cabo Verde, to make Guinea-Bissau, to make Portugal flower. He also learned how people imagine themselves in the world so that the work of revolution could move forward. As he studied revolution, he looked very closely at the successes of revolutionary peoples in Vietnam and revolutionary peoples in Cuba. And he noticed that in those struggles, the guerrilla forces fighting an asymmetrical war used the mountains to their advantage. And Cabral said, well, Guinea-Bissau does not have any mountain. So the people will have to be the mountain. And that, to me, is the high ridge of abolition and its valley, that the people are the mountains wherever they might be. The other person whose thinking and work and history always impresses my imagination to explode beyond its limits is Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman, who, having freed herself, which is to say stolen herself, committed, as it were, a capital crime under the laws of Maryland by running away, went back. And she went back again and again and again and again and again. She did that not for any reason other than to make a home. She tells us her home, she realized, was back at the plantation because that's where all of her love and heart were. Therefore, she committed to making a home for her loved ones, including those she did not know yet. Freedom is a place. Thank you again for including me in this wonderful conversation. I look forward to dialoguing with Sister Winona Ladue. Anin, Anin, Indoy, Maginaduk, hello, my relatives. Nice to be here with you tonight, and also special greetings to Auntie Pauline Shirt. That is right. She knew my father, and she knew me as a very young woman. It's yeah. nice to be here with you, with, with you today in this time. I'm here on the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota, where I have Zoomed. I have Zoomed to visit. So, you know, I was thinking about this one. I had a lot of privilege in my life, but one of our great leaders, I remember his name was Frank Foolscrow. He was a chief of the Oglalas, and he said to me, I heard him say, he didn't say to me, he said, the only thing sadder than an Indian who isn't free is the Indian who doesn't remember what it's like to be free. And I'm thinking about that when Ruth is talking because I'm thinking about how it is that you recover your freedom 
you know, in, in any means that that is, whether it is the structural pieces or it is the pieces of incarceration, because certainly, you know, Native people, Aboriginal people, First Nations people understand, you know, that reality of incarceration. So I, you know, I took kind of a different approach. I'm kind of a girl who works on infrastructure, you know, and so I was thinking about, uh, you know, first of all, that, you know, at this moment in time, what we are talking about in terms of the infrastructure, whether it is of prisons or of pipelines, is infrastructure about life or infrastructure about death. You know, and what we want to do is build infrastructure that is a tools for life, that supports life, whether it supports life for Mother Earth or whether it supports life for people. You know, and, and uh, we live in a, you know, North America, and the United States has a D in infrastructure, Canada probably a D too. You know, I always thought we had first world countries, but what we have is stuff that crumbles because they got real busy being all about expansion and nobody took care to make sure that their infrastructure still worked. You know, and so whether it is bridges or whether it is roads or whether it is pipelines, they are leaking. Or maybe it is just the water because Canada has more bottled water advisories than any other first world country I can imagine. That is, of course, in the First Nations territories. What we've seen is a lot of destructive infrastructure. And I, and I want to talk a little bit about that in the context of some art. This is our, uh, some art from our people, and everybody here knows this art. And this is some um, you know, art about relatives. And then this is some art from our nations. And I don't know, I think Pauline's seen this art. And I don't know if y'all seen this art up in Canada, but this is traditionally called the winter count, where uh, keeping track of things that happened in your nation or in your people. And so, you know, the coming of the white people, the plagues, how much horses, you know, different events kept track of. But in the time of the militarization, the Indian wars, and the imprisonment of our people, our people no longer had the grand buffalo robes upon which to, to paint. And so we were, we, in our imprisonment, we began to paint on paper, and then something called ledger art, where we recorded these historic events, you know, of our of uh, different times. This is, you know, war. I like this one because it looked like the Indians were winning. I felt good about that one. And then there's this one, which shows kind of the beginning of incarceration, the moving of people from the northern plains into uh, into prison camps, into prison camps, rounded up and then unloading from the trains to the steamboat to take them to the Fort Marion prison, which is in. Uh, Florida, you know, St. Augustine is where that is. But I just wanted to talk about that because this is recordings of some infrastructure. But then I want to talk about the art of today. And so ledger art usually records historic events. And so, you know, many years now I've been fighting pipelines from Canada. Seems like Canada can't get enough of pipelines, has no plan B, has no plan A either, just to plan to just kind of keep going. And so I commissioned this piece of art, which is called the Last Breath of the Black Snake, which is about the killing of the Keystone XL pipeline. And so you have the same art form, and now we are tackling the infrastructure of oppression that you see in this. You see, uh, you know, all these Indians shooting up that pipeline project and all these cowboys, the Cowboys and Indians Alliance is what is recorded in this. And, you know, usually ledger art, a lot of times has men in it, but I made them put a woman in it. So there, there I am in my pretty green dress off killing the black snake. And then here's another piece of art. 
which is the art of resistance. And this is ledger art, different artists, but this is us building the infrastructure of resistance. You know, we kill the black snake in the last one, and in this one, we put up the wind turbine. You know, and so what I want to say is, is that to me, part of what our work is, is the imagining of freedom and the understanding of freedom, remembering it because I did not forget what it was like to be free. And then the creating of that, you know, in our words, in our proposals, in our infrastructure and in our art. And so, you know, that is part of what I wanted to, to share is this process. So then how you also, in our case, you just take over the infrastructure with art. You know, we have a lot of that in, uh, in uh, Canada as well, but this is the housing project that I live next to. And so to me, this is kind of like the question of the infrastructure of the people or the infrastructure of Canada or the colonial nations. And, you know, we don't need a, a long talk about all the implications of the stranded assets of energy infrastructure, the mega dam projects. What we need, though, is infrastructure that makes sense for people, you know, and, and makes sense for Mother Earth. And so, you know, just in the last couple of pictures, I got, you know, some examples of that. This is a rail line that we need to have. We want to be the country, the North American continent that is not backwards with our rail system. We want an electric rail system. It's called solutionary rail. If you've got infrastructure, you should make it work. Backbones, backbones of North America. And we need to reclaim the rail line infrastructure so that it serves people. And then, um, you know, we as well, in the work I do particularly, I work on the new green revolution. And my interest is really in the... Uh, building of a hemp economy of infrastructure, you know, noting that hemp itself can uh, do about anything, not only that fossil fuels do, but that anything does. And I call this the new green revolution, hemp. I say that freely because the green revolution started here in Minnesota, the University of Minnesota with Norman Borlaug. And so the new green revolution should also start here. I uh, say that when you build the new infrastructure, you have a chance of doing it right. And, uh, you know, whether it's Canada, the United States, what you want to do is make sure that infrastructure benefits people of color, not just uh, colonial people. You know, just to say that, um, you know, in this moment that we have a lot of our work in my community, we work with a lot of people to make this change. And um, I'm happy to be part of changing the infrastructure of this country. And I'm also proud to be part of challenging the infrastructure of Canada. In the process of envisioning what we are making, we make sure that we make our infrastructure, put our put our face on our infrastructure these days. That's what I want to start talking about, and I'm happy to uh, visit with Ruthie and uh, Sherry. I don't want to get in the way of a naturally developing conversation, but... To get things started, maybe I want to reference an earlier conversation we had this week about wanting to get away from a parallelism between decolonization and abolition in terms of infrastructures and places of freedom. So I wonder if I could invite you to think together about how to bring those movements or think those movements together in ways that either hold hands now or you can see on the horizon moving together? You know, as far as I'm concerned, anybody who thinks abolition and decolonization are parallel, are living in a parallel universe from the one that I think we actually inhabit. Because 
abolition requires decolonization. And, you know, it might be a question whether decolonization requires abolition. But abolition can't happen if colonization continues. So that's the first thing I want to say. And second, related to that, for a lot of people, for good reason, abolition seems to mean something that has to do with getting people, principally people of color, principally Black people, out of prison and jail, principally in the United States. Abolition might start with the focus on the deadliness of prison and jail, but in order to live in a world without prison and jail, everything has to change. Everything. That means colonialism cannot continue. That means capitalism cannot continue. Therefore, abolition, rather than being a, a narrowly defined movement that is uh, for, by, and about a segment of the world's dispossessed people, what it actually is, is an opening of freedom movement to freedom movement within freedom movement. To give a particular example of this, um, I've been working for about a year now with a group of people who are based all around the world who have been trying to sort of write out the global, which is to say internationalist character of abolition in order to find a way between small c communism and decolonization everywhere. So I don't see parallels at all. To open up the question about infrastructure itself, what is it about infrastructure that offers us a conceptual lens in terms of materially grounded points of entry into political struggle, but also in terms of thinking otherwise about a world we want to live in? It's interesting because in the time that we are in now, you know, I'm quarantined in a remote area. And the closest community to me is the Amish community. And, and so there's the Amish and the Anishinaabe are all hanging out in this, you know, remote area. And it makes you think a lot about infrastructure and technology and choice, you know, because we've grown to be people that assume this is what y'all need. And in fact, you don't need all that stuff. You know, we got way too much concrete. We'll go with that as a start. You know, I think it's the single most used substance in the world, concrete. And everything we are talking about, basically, that we oppose is built of concrete. <laughs> you know, and so I spend a lot of time thinking about how are we going to build that? Why will we build it that way? And these are questions that we don't ask in North America. The Amish ask them, though. It's really interesting having these conversations. Like, they, they are a lot like the Anishinaabe, and they're different. But in some ways, like thinking about the, the implications of that choice of infrastructure. So here I am having those thoughts in a very like a clear way on mapping the infrastructure of liberation for a region. Like what do you need? Why do you need it? Do you need those roads? The other thing about infrastructure that I really, I think is interesting, Ruthie, you and I work on things that a lot of people don't think about. Is that fair? Fair. They're like, oh yeah, I never thought about that. That's like me too. They're like, what? The power substation? I was like, yeah, that's how you get your energy. 
And like, who gets to decide where it is? And does it pick up solar or does it not? Is it fueled by nuclear energy or a big dam project in Canada? Who gets to decide who gets to use the power? You know, those kind of questions are questions that should be asked, you know, because absent being asking those questions, business as usual goes on, you know, which is the same kind of things that you are asking and we are saying in the abolition movement. Why is it that one out of four prisoners in the world is in the United States or some like really incredible number, right? You know, time to ask all them questions because it's not working. Exactly. And if, if I could just pick up here, one of the things that makes infrastructure centrally important and endlessly interesting and also full of contradiction is that any kind of infrastructure, whatever it is, whether it's concrete infrastructure or the infrastructure of mass communication that's enabling us to talk across all these time zones now, means is that it underlies what we can produce in that sense, productivity. So I don't mean productivity in the capitalist sense. I mean productivity, what we can do. And so infrastructure speeds some things up and slows other things down. And I'll give an example that might be uh, meaningful for where you're at now, Winona. So running water is a fantastic thing. I lived in a house with no water for 17 years. I know how fantastic it is not to carry the water to the house. I know it. But it's also true that when a, let us say a settlement, we can call it a village or a crossroads or a town, stops having a central place where people go get the water because there's piped water and there are pumps and so forth, then that also means that a certain kind of social life goes away as well. And so a new kind of productivity of social life comes into being. It can be great. It can be terrible. I'm not saying I wish I could still carry water. I'm saying that when you change one thing, everything changes. So to go to the question that you were posing, Winona, about, for example, concrete. So one is the growth of population on the planet over the last 200 years. And it's almost doubled since I was born, since I was born in the middle of the last century. Another is the use of concrete in, since the 20th century. Another is the rise in mass incarceration in the United States. There are all of these things that have the exact same curve. And one of the questions that you know I ask myself is, and I'd love to see your artists put this into the ledger art, is how do we take those images and what those images mean and turn them into something new, imagining different infrastructural possibilities? So I just re read a, a story that a friend of mine is working on now about um, some of the land occupations in South Africa, in Durban and in Cape Town. So as you know, people there have claimed land. They've been occupying land for many, many years. It's part of land back in South Africa and have slowly, slowly, slowly built entire communities in which People govern themselves, there are schools, there are some efforts to put in infrastructure in the form of water and electricity. And one of the difficulties, especially now because of COVID, is getting adequate food. And the fear of famine is really enormous around the planet right now. Where is some of the food 
for Durban and Cape Town coming from? It's coming from the MST farms in Brazil. Yes. So the MST is the biggest producer of organic rice. This is according to my friend, Maiza Mendonca, the biggest producer of organic rice in that part of Turtle Island. And there's so much that they are exporting the food at cost or less to Venezuela, where people are hungry, to South Africa, where people are hungry, and so forth. But this also means that a certain kind of infrastructure, communication, as well as shipping, is necessary. So the very kind of infrastructure that is burying us under concrete and plastic is also possibly uh, something that if we could seize, we could use to do more of the kind of circulation of the means for well-being that the MST in collaboration, not charity, in collaboration with relatives in South Africa is making a reality. I'm thinking about, um, you know, these opportunities that are now. And I liked when you started out and you said that all of this is here. You know, I really like what Erin Dottie Roy, she's talking about the pandemic as a portal, you know, and, and it's just an amazing like moment where she says pandemics make, you know, in, in the history of the world, pandemics always change society. You know, everything that we knew is absolutely transformed now. And I look at this moment and I'm like, what are you going to do? Because all of that cool infrastructure for moving food around, like that shrimp that is raised in Scotland and deveined in China and brought to a Walmart near you, really makes no sense, right? And we know how fragile these big systems are predicated on so much fossil fuels and so much different kinds of slavery, whether it is environmental slavery or human slavery. You know, that's what it's all predicated on, you know? And so in this moment, we see how fragile it is and we see this moment and this opportunity, whether, you know, through land back and through, you know, these communities that are just, you know, creating this new world. And that's what I see out there now is the transformation of infrastructure because that stuff don't work. Big is not better. You know, size does matter and sometimes you need to be little. And now is the time that we're going to figure that out, you know, is that sometimes we, we need to transform things. And so she says, you know, when you want to walk through that portal, you want to bring your dirty skies, you want to bring your prejudice, your avarice, your hatred, your databanks, you know, all of that. You want to bring that through the portal or you want to walk through clean? You want to walk through clean. And to me, this is this moment where, you know, the work that we have done for all these years, I see seeds everywhere. I see so much growing in so many places. You know, the Zapatistas used to talk, and they still do talk about organizing in the places where neoliberalism is not. That's my community. You know, nothing ever trickled down here. And so people kind of like, you know, I think a lot of people in my community, they see this time here, they see this, this COVID. You know what they do? They hoard their wild rice. They make sure they got food and they get, you know, and they get local and they create new infrastructure that makes sense for these times, you know, and that's what I'm seeing happening in this moment. I, I think we take this moment and we take the social movements that are transforming the society. When you look out there, we can all see the same thing. There are crises, there are ecological crises of biblical proportions, right? There is a health crisis we have never experienced. 
You know, I'm just a little bit younger than you, Ruthie. But I never saw anything like this, John. Political crisis like I never saw in my whole life. Economic crisis that I never saw. Things are just totally shaken up. And I say, let's keep shaking her. You know, let's keep going. Because now is that time when when these communities, whether they are in South Africa or, or uh, First Nation in Northern Canada, now's the time that we can we can make something different because the rest of it is all shaky. You know, infrastructure is shaky. And in fact, the statues are falling. Whoever thought that was going to happen? I didn't think, I never in my million years would have thought all those statues would have fallen so quickly. Maybe I can jump in with another question here just to keep this beautiful conversation going about the social and political life of infrastructure and how to not necessarily even need to dismantle or destroy it, but ways in which it can actually be repurposed to create different networks of social relationships and different distributions of power. Abolition and land back movements have really come to capture this moment because they demand justice and redistribution in completely different ways. And so I'm wondering, you know, what are the underpinning ideas about justice that we can ground this repurposing of infrastructure in? What sources do you look to for principles that could regenerate social relations and legal systems? And what are some of the models or, or inspirations that you look to for organizing these material relations of care and solidarity? All right, back to the title of my book, um, Change Everything. As I look around the world, I see people doing remarkable things, as Winona was just talking about. So, for example, in the city of Chicago, since the pandemic hit, the uh, density of mutual aid networks throughout that city is phenomenal. I haven't been there. I haven't been anywhere. Like everybody, I've been sheltering in place. But I hear about it. I read about it. I see that people are figuring out uh, on a daily basis almost how to bring the most ad hoc in some cases and longstanding and other relationships into being so that they can sustain people through this un well into the uncertain future that we face. And people there, and I learned about this from people like Kelly Hayes and others, have been using um, already existing capacities, you know, buildings and schools and so forth, as well as developing new capacities in order to circulate things and people, make sure that people are, are housed or not hungry. So that's one example. Then another example that certainly predates uh, pandemic organizing is what people have been trying to develop in Jackson, Mississippi. And Jackson, Mississippi and Jackson Rising, you know, come out of work initially uh, was organized in a not urban, but rather rural um, area of the South. And people there are trying to develop cooperatives for production, cooperatives for food, cooperatives for housing um, in one way or another. That is to say, to put a barrier between the things we need for life and the possibility for somebody to extract a profit in those relationships. So 
the fact of housing need not um, support profit, but it does. The need for food need not support profit, but it does, and so on. So I see people trying, again, to live small c communism, whatever you, it can be called many things in many places. And this is, these kinds of communities are flourishing around the world. In some places, they're connected to big things, big structures, big cities, uh, big population. And in other places, they're in less densely settled parts of the world, but still where people live their full life. A lot of folks these days go on and on for good reason about the fact that one of the big transformations of human life is that most of us have become urban. But that means that half of us, minus one, are still not urban. And that matters as well. So those are some of the indications and thoughts that I, I have for the abolition decolonial world that's coming into being, little by little, and then suddenly quickly. You know, I don't. I think that like we all thought we had an idea of you know there's all these models and this is how stuff's going to happen. That's not how it's going to happen. You know, we don't have any. We're really not in charge. It turns out. You know, this is a news flash. You know, humans are definitely not in charge. Many times I think that Native people said, don't pick a fight with Mother Nature. Won't work out. Don't want to do that one. So, you know, here we are. You know, and I look out there and I say, you know, I look and see what kind of agency do we have, you know, in our communities. You know, you can look and see, you know, what disaster capitalism, you know, can do, you know, when they go and just kind of, Take, try to take over Puerto Rico or whatever, you know, and build the same darn infrastructure they had before. Or you could say crisis is opportunity. Let's make sense of the crisis and learn from it. Like, I don't want to tell those people, like, I got relatives that in that area, Northern California, Oregon, all burned up. You know, it's like, why don't you rebuild that so it makes sense so that all those farm worker families are living in trailer parks and they're living in solar houses. You know, why don't you use all that cannabis money and the Emerald Triangle that's out there to make something right? And, and you know, that's what I see is I see this. And on one hand, you know, we all know what's going to happen is some big guys are going to do some dumb stuff and make some stuff work. But there's a lot of places that that's not going to happen too because they ain't going to get there because the chaos is too significant. And so in my assessment, now is really the time to build the infrastructure we want. You know, so I'm making a hard case for solar thermal panels. That's what we build over here. You know, I did, I showed, talked a little about the AMP, which is the new green revolution. And once we figure that out, we want to own it. I think y'all got that idea. I don't want to be the last people to the table. We think the new economy should look like people like us. That's who should be in the new economy because the old one didn't work out. Time to move on. That's really my, my thinking on that. But we do this solar thermal. We're putting solar on all kinds of houses, tribal houses in northern Minnesota, we could put them up in Manitoba and in Ontario and, you know, to the north too. No problem, y'all. Just let us know. But who is doing that is a lot of people who got out of prison. You know, our work in our community, like my village, I think like one out of four, one out of three men is in prison or out of prison or in some kind of a quick rotation. Should we call it that? You know, I've never seen anything like it. Our demographics are just crazy demographics, right? 
And so what ha- what would happen if we could catch one of those guys or a bunch of those guys on their way out and have them make solar panels and install them? That's what we're doing. That's what we want to do. We got Warrior Way. We're working with these groups up there because, you know, what I want is to see this opportunity of crisis as a just transition to make something beautiful and to transform the infrastructure of oppression into infrastructure that is of liberation and infrastructure that that transforms the world and transforms the relationship because it's relationships between people, but it's relationship between humans and the rest of the world because that's where it's messed up too. You know, what we all know here is that in fact, we're not the only ones here and uh, it matters what happens to those little beings too. You know what, what you were just saying, Winona, put me in mind of something I've been thinking about a lot lately and it's, you know, wherever I, wherever I turn, Los Angeles and in um, Southeast Asia and in Europe and in uh, throughout a good deal of of the African continent, in West Asia, Middle East, people are trying to figure out in as many ways as they can how to actually live in the world rather than to destroy it. And this figuring is something that brings people together the way we're together now. And the fact, the infrastructural fact of this possibility gives us so many clues to everything that have to change. I'm talking to you through my laptop and my laptop has a battery and the battery has lithium in it. And the lithium comes from where? It comes from Bolivia. And if I need to get a new cable, I need to get it shipped to me and it will come on a ship like the ship that carries the food to South Africa, but it will come here to where I am now. So this made me think a lot about the two Amazons. There's Amazon, the global corporation that's based in the United States that is producing the world's first trillionaire. Think of that. And um, that Amazon is so spread around the world that if we think about its organization, which is to say how it's deorganizing the world by combining people, places, and things into those brown boxes that then get delivered to people's doorsteps, then we kind of see everyone, as it were. The people where the resources are extracted to make this kind of electronic communication possible, which is necessary for Amazon to be able to sell the things it sells. Amazon doesn't make anything, it just sells things. And then the people who are the essential workers, many of whom are people who've done time or otherwise been excluded from many aspects of everyday life, who then do the difficult, dirty, and dangerous work of making, moving, growing, and caring for things and people that then goes into the Amazon stream and so forth. So you get the picture. That Amazon is one of the ways that the world is knit together. COVID is a way that the world is knit together. But I was thinking about the other Amazon, the lungs of the world, that part that's mostly now in the contemporary nation state of Brazil, but not wholly there, and how that is the center of biodiversity. I mean, there's biodiversity everywhere, but that is the kind of beating heart center and breathing lungs center of the planet or essential part of the planet, maybe center is not a good word. And the Amazon then produces the actual cornucopia for the world. 
whether it's, you know, where chocolate came from or where biodiversity still lingers, but it's also a place that is so imperiled now because of the fires that are clearing the forest in order to raise beef to put into the food system for McDonald's so that low-wage, high-stressed workers can get a cheap meal and get enough energy to go back to work. So we see everything connected and connected and connected. And I think that one of the beauties of this conversation is to invite people who are participating to think not only that decolonization and abolition are not parallel, but like this, but also to remember the whole world is like this, the entire world. And the fact that we can talk is the proof of that. It's such a ridiculous, like, it's surreal. It's surreal. And then, you know, Back when we was young, I could say that, Ruthie, the oil companies ruled. You know who rules now? Not the oil companies. They they aren't even in the top 10 of the S&P. Exxon is no more. Who's the top? Amazon, Google, Apple, you know, Zoom. They're probably getting right up there. You know, and so this whole new world of infrastructure, you know, is created. And I remember when I was a young woman and my father, you know, we were talking about my father's name was Sunbear. But he used to hang out with this Thomas Banyaka guy, and he was a Hopi. He talked about the Hopi prophecy of the web in the sky, the web in the sky, that the time the world would change when there was this web in the sky that signified it was part of the it signified the end of the world that we knew in an, in a new world, you know. And I and when I was young, I thought that was like Star Wars. Remember that military thing of Star Wars? I was like, oh, that's what they're talking about. But no, what they were talking about was this internet, you know, because it is an entirely different world. It's so interesting to think about. You know, on some days, do you play this game? I don't know if you play this game, Ruthie, but I play this game. It's called, um, what do I keep after I decolonize? You know what? So I have these conversations like, I don't know, red jello. I like red jello, but I got to dish that one. You know, ditch the red jello. You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, let me think. The internet. I like the internet. But I don't like all this stuff, right? You know what I'm saying? This is like making these choices and and looking at this moment, you know, and saying what we want in our in our decolonized, post-colonial, just transition, you know, through the portal world. What technology we want, you know, what infrastructure do we want? What will will help life? You know, it's really about life and death. It's really about life and death. You know, because there's the infrastructure of death, which, you know, real good at that one. And what you need is the infrastructure of life, you know, and that may not all be concrete. You know, a lot of that infrastructure may not be concrete. And we need to, like, start deconstructing that. Maybe some hempcrete for the houses. That'd be great. But just kind of, like, deconstructing some of the infrastructure and, and building infrastructure that makes sense. That was Winona LaDuke and Ruth Wilson-Gilmore in dialogue with moderator Shiri Pasternak at the event Beyond Pipelines and Prisons, Infrastructures of Abolition from Social Justice Week 2020. Thanks for listening to Speaking for Change on CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto, a retrospective on Social Justice Week programming at Toronto Metropolitan University. Every week this semester, we're highlighting a talk or panel from the past 12 years of Social Justice Weeks. Tune in at the same time next week for a new episode. 
I'm your host, Kike Roach. Thanks for listening.